So my name's Amanda and I'm going to be reading the Bible to us today. I'm going to be reading from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 13 to 2, verse 3. Um, and you can also follow along behind on the screen, the words will come up there. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in the last times for your sake. Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. We're going to be focusing on that passage that was just read a little while ago. You may not have your Bible here, you might have a phone that you can uh, look it up with or it's, uh, is it on the hub, mate? Is that the idea? So if you're a hub type person, you can hub it, I think is the uh, the idea. Uh, remember last week we kicked off the first part of 1 Peter and today uh, we return to look from verse 13 of that first chapter as we press on together. So what my pray and then we'll, we'll tuck into it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who does speak to us. You're calling God and in calling us, you call us for purpose. We pray that we'll have real clarity as we consider the purpose for our calling as we look at this part of your word this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I asked you what's the best thing that has ever happened to your life, uh, what would you say? You know, for me, it was definitely becoming a Christian. But lots of people around me didn't see it that way. Uh, you know, I was aware that when I got converted, I was uh, uh, about 20 years old, undergraduate student at Adelaide University, doing a degree there. And when I became a Christian and told my friends who weren't Christians, they didn't say to me, way to go, Paul, you know, like, you are so, how come you're so lucky and how come we miss out, you know, that wasn't the sort of genre of what they were saying to me at the time, a little more critical about what happened. I didn't get the impression that they wanted to swap places, you know, they didn't say, it's so unfair, you get to become a Christian, we don't, you know, that that generally wasn't the way the conversations went down. Now, don't get me wrong, they, they respected my choices They just weren't lining up uh, to become followers of Jesus. 
Last week we saw that it is a wonderful privilege to be a Christian, uh, but I want to say it's hard to hang on to that truth that it is such a privilege to be a Christian when the people around you don't see it that way. You know, when we live in a culture that is not positive generally about Christianity. So why isn't following Jesus more popular? You know, why why not? Uh, why don't people line up to become Christians? Over the years, I think what I've noticed is that my friends have generally seen Christianity to be a, a series of sort of restrictive religious rules. You know, what it is is a life of deprivation now uh, so that in due course you get a front row seat in heaven. Yeah, a life of sacrifice now, hoping you get payback later. But I want to suggest to you that nothing could be further from the truth. As we come to this next section of 1 Peter, and we start in verse 13, and it builds on what's come before. That's why it starts with therefore, therefore, yeah, given everything we've looked at so far, we keep pressing on. But at this point from verse 13, it starts to talk about behaviour. Uh, how Christians should live. So you might be tempted to think, ah, here's the religious rulesy bit. You know, we've heard all about wonderful things God's done for us, and now here are the rules that we have to live by. This is the what I miss out on if I'm going to become a follower of Jesus. But can I just say to you that that's a real misread of the Christian life? Becoming a Christian is not so much about following rules. It's more like belonging to a wonderful family and being brought into this family. What I want to do is just go through this section and highlight some of the family language that's used here, just to give you a bit of a feel for it. So verse 13, it says, he's given us new birth. Now, we haven't joined a political party or a sporting club where you pay subscriptions for privileges. Uh, No, a new birth into a family. And God's not described as a judge or a policeman. Uh, Back in verse 2, he's described as a father. Same in verse 13 or verse 17. In verse 8, we're told that we love Jesus, our brother, who died for us. He's our sibling. Uh, Verse 14, we're described as obedient children. We're not slaves or servants or employees. Uh, We have brothers and sisters that are part of the new family we belong to. In verse 22, it says we're to love one another deeply from the heart. You come to chapter 2, verse 2, and we're described as newborn babies. Uh, We're not subcontractors with a job to do. Family members pulling together as part of that family. Now, can I say, uh, I know we all have very mixed family backgrounds. some, Some of us have terrific memories growing up wonderful experiences that we cherish and delight in. But some families don't work so well. Some families experience tension and struggles, disharmony, uh, abuse. Some families, and maybe you belong to one of these, people don't talk to each other, and that's hard. But I think we all have a sense of what we want family to be, you know, what we, we desire for family, that's the place where there's love or care, respect, affection, integrity. Uh, people who want the very best for each other. 
where we feel supported when we're going through tough times, when we, when we grieve, people we can celebrate with. Yeah, there's some of the things that, that families like. And what we do here is from verse 13 of chapter 1, we explore what it means to be part of God's family. And what we see here are some of the, um, the family values or trays that get uh, thrown up for us to look at. Uh, every family has their sort of their um, characteristics, their values that, that you try and put into place. I know family Harrington, uh, my wife in particular, Sue, was really strong on saying that people were always more important than stuff. People over stuff. So if our kids accidentally broke things in our family, uh, even if they were precious heirlooms, you know, if, if it was just an accident and one of those things that couldn't have been, you know, for their age, worked out in advance, we didn't get upset. Right? Stuff. Just stuff. But if people damage relationships, if they said things to pull other people down, if they lied and broke relationship, if they did things to undermine other people, that was really serious because people were important. Stuff not so much, people really important. And that's a value that I think our kids grew up with. What we have here uh, in this section are five key values. Now, for the technically minded, um, there are, in this section, five imperative verbs, okay? I see Peter Lockery, his eyes just light up at this point. Ah, imperative verbs, wonderful, okay? It's it's just saying that, that like hooks in this section, that hook ideas to. They're, they're statements, emphatic statements to attach yourself to that the ideas gather around. Five values. So let's look at them together and uh, we'll see how we go. First comes in verse 13, where to set our hope fully on future grace. Verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, we, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've already received grace. That's the reality. Uh, you're saved. You have a relationship with God. But there is a future grace that's spoken of here. A grace that you receive and experience when Jesus is revealed, that is when Jesus comes to this world to wind up the history of this planet. And that future grace is meant to shape your lives, our lives now. But I think we're a, a society and a culture that finds it hard to think about future anything. You know, uh, long-term planning in Australia is giving some thought to the fact that you need to put away enough money for superannuation to live on when you retire. That's extraordinarily far-sighted as far as we, we see things, right? So I think in that sort of culture, to set your hope on future grace, how do you actually do that? What's stored up for you in heaven? Well, notice verse 13, it says, have minds that are alert and fully sober. Now, literally what this says is, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay, so it's picking up on an ancient image. You know, the, um, the old man with his flowing caftan robes. Right? If he wanted to hustle, 
he had to pull up the robes to give his legs a bit of room to move, you know, so he could stretch out. So here the idea is gird up the loins, you know, roll up the shirt sleeves of your mind. Um, to boot up the computer of your brain is the sort of idea that's going on here. It requires focus and concentration. Uh, I know someone has recently finished their professional medical exams to specialise and I watch this person go through this process over quite a period of time. And it, it involved, you know, not only school and high school, but undergraduate years at uh, university, then uh, leaving university, getting some experience, and then undertaking further study to specialise for several years while getting married and having a child. And then two series of exams that have occurred this year that got postponed because of COVID in the middle. You know, the gap turned into nine months rather than just three. And, you know, it has just been something this person has just had to go at and at and at and at. Friends, what we're being told here is we're God's children. We're to study for heaven, okay, and do it in a persistent sort of way. So can I ask you, what, what do you what do you dream about? Yeah, what's on your, your bucket list? What occupies your imagination? Yeah, what if it happened to you? You would go, you know, consistently with your personality. Yeah, 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 yes. You know, I would never do that. But, you know, you might. Or how would you express it? I, you know, I don't know. What would it do, do for you? And then what I'm going to ask you, do you think and dwell on the seismic change that will occur when Jesus returns. Because it will completely change what you worry about now. If you think about those things, it puts things in perspective now. It changes your your investment strategies. It was Martin Luther, the reformer of the 16th century, he said this, we need to live as if Jesus died yesterday rose again this morning, this morning and is coming back tomorrow. Died yesterday, rose this morning, coming back tomorrow. Right? Set your minds, be alert. Second value that comes up, we'll pick it up in verses 14 and 15. It talks about being holy. This is what Sue picked up on uh, with the kids' talk. Verse 15. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. I remember when one of our children came home from school, we were sitting around the table, they were about to pray, and this child said, today, he was seven years old at the time, he said, I'd like to pray because I learned how to pray today at school. And Sue and I looked at each other, yeah, we thought we'd actually probably taught him a bit about this up until this point in time, you know, so we're a little bit, but, you know, we didn't want to crush him. And uh, so he said, well, you know, show us what you learned. And uh, he, he got this very serious look on his face and he held his hands together like this and bowed his head and in a very grown-up voice for a seven-year-old said, Our Father who art in heaven. I almost threw up. Uh, you know, it was one of those, um, like I didn't want to discourage him, so I did, didn't want to do that. But do you understand that whole idea of holiness, you know, rule-keeping Wowzers, people who think they're better than others uh, because they go to church or don't do drugs or don't, 
you know, dance while they play poker machines or whatever it is, you know, but there are sort of concepts that roll around about what holiness is. But it's interesting here, there are no examples. I don't know if you picked it up, no examples of what holiness is here. And that's because holiness is to do not with rules, but with relationships. Okay? Look again, verse 15. Just as he who called you is holy, be holy. And a bit later on, be holy because I am holy. God says, I'm holy. That's why you're holy. It's a relational thing. Kids do imitate their parents. And that's an appropriate thing for children to do. Uh, Again, I, I can remember being in church in the city one time, old building. I was just walking up and down the aisle before we started, shaking hands, welcoming people. I had a three-year-old child at the time, and uh, as I was shaking hands to people, they were laughing at me. I thought it was a bit disrespectful, but, you know, not a big deal. And uh, But then I worked out why they were laughing, because I was looking at my three-year-old was following me down the aisle, shaking hands and welcoming people to church, you know. <laughs> And I had trained that child in a six-month training course, two hours a day, to help them do this, right? No, just saw me doing it and did it as well. See, we are God's kids, and we're to be like him. And that's a great contrast with the other pressures we feel. Uh, We all know the power of peer pressure. The pressure to conform, to fit in, to be like those around us, whether it's, you know, dress sense. I did explain to Luke that it was blue trousers, not just blue shirt and grey trousers, but, you know. Um, sorry, it's a joke lost on you if you can't see his trousers. But, uh, but, but you know, like there are all sorts of ways. We have any sense of dress or uh, what we buy, what we wear, you know, fitting in with the crowd is a powerful thing. But friends... We're not to run with the crowd. We imitate the one who called us in the relationship with himself. Third value comes up, particularly verses 17 to 21, where to live in reverent fear. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, I don't know if you picked it up. There's a very interesting phrase there a father who judges a father who judges not a judge who judges a father who judges two ideas rolled together I I worked as a lawyer for just a few years and I remember the first time I appeared before a magistrate to do a very simple thing a guilty plea it would have been the first few months after I qualified as a lawyer and the guilty plea, it was really straightforward. Um, charges would be read, plead guilty. I talk about the extenuating circumstances. Judge passes sentence. What can be more straightforward than that, all right? But let me tell you, I was as nervous of, as anything appearing before the court the first time. And as I stood up, I, you know, went into my spiel, blah, 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 blah. And the magistrate... It worked out it was my first appearance. So he started interrupting me and asking questions. I'm thinking, you're not meant to do this, right? The way this works is I speak, you pass sentence, we're done, you know? And uh, But he was just he was just having a bit of a lend to me at this particular point in time. It was quite, quite terrifying. God has spoken of here as a judge 
And that could be extraordinarily intimidating. Uh, No question about that. But notice he's a father judge. Now, if you have no relationship with this father God, of course, it's appropriate to be terrified. But if you know God as father, then you'll be in awe and wonder of who he is, but you'll also feel affection. And that's why the security of the relationship is just spelt out in more detail. Verse 18. It's not with imperishable things such as silver or gold that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. Two ideas I want to pick up on quickly. The first is to be redeemed from an empty way of life. If there is no relationship with God, then your whole value system and worldview will be shaped by this world. It's what you can see, it's what you can taste, touch, feel. And in that sense, it's empty. It's an empty way of life because it doesn't last. It has a use by date. Uh, that is the use by date of this world until Jesus returns. Ultimately, it's insubstantial. But notice the second idea that comes out here. God's children are ransomed for a high price. We're redeemed not just with perishable stuff like gold. Now, here's the interesting contrast, because if you're thinking of something in this world that was imperishable, you go for gold. Um, in economically depressed times, in crisis, the value of gold goes up because it is such a stable element in our society. So at the start of this year, who can tell me what gold is selling for per ounce? It was roughly... No, not the start of the year, Luke. Not over $2,000. Beginning of the year, $1,300. Okay? You know, do you? I, Yeah, 1,300 it was. The end of the year, uh, I looked it up this morning just because I had a bit of spare time on my hands, you know, it was uh, $2,400. See, that's what happens with gold. People go for something that's stable, solid. Yeah, you can't miss out on apparently when it comes to gold. Recession, valuable. I looked on uh, again on Google and it said this about gold. Gold lasts a lifetime. Last a lifetime, it doesn't perish. But, verse 18, it's described as perishable. Isn't that interesting? And it's only because it has use in this world. That's it. No more use apart from this world. You're not going to buy anything with your gold in heaven. And it's contrasted with the blood of Jesus, which is described as precious. Now, I googled uh, Red Cross. Uh, They keep donated blood refrigerated for how many days? This is quiz time, okay? Anyone know? Okay, 42 days. They can keep it up to 42 days refrigerated. Uh, But that doesn't quite, you know, imperishable. Probably doesn't quite rank there, does it? uh, But the point is the blood of Jesus... We're told it has lasting impact. It endures. 
You see, the blood of Jesus shed for you, for your sins, so you you could be forgiven. And it endures as the basis for your relationship with God for all eternity. See, gold, the most valuable core element, pretty well historically in our world, totally outweighed by the precious blood of Jesus for you. And if Jesus' blood dominates your identity and your behaviour, you won't live life accumulating stuff uh, or putting your effort into career or anything that won't last. What you'll do is you'll identify with the one uh, who shed his blood for you and live for him. Fourth value that comes up, uh, we're to love one another deeply from the heart, particularly from verse 22 of chapter 1 on. Can I, can I say you cannot say you are loved by God and stand at a distance from his family, your siblings? That those two things just cannot go together. And the love deeply idea here is the loving at uh, full stretch. It's the athletic image of striving for the finish line. Right, giving it all your effort. And that means we reject unloving behaviours. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Get rid of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. You know, we don't say stuff to people's, um, behind people's backs that we won't say to their face. You know, we have integrity in relationships. There's a guy I work with who grew up in a uh, pastor's family. And he said... I can never remember my parents ever saying a negative thing about a member of a congregation that they belong to. Never. And of course it should be the case, but I thought that's a wonderful thing for the son of a pastor to be able to say. Wonderful thing. And on the positive side, what does it mean? Well... Verse 17 and later on in the chapter, we're to love the family of believers. Chapter 3, verse 8, love one another. Chapter 4, verse 8, love each other deeply. Chapter 5, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love, post-COVID perhaps, unless you're Damien. Uh, okay, <laughs> greet one another with a kiss of love. This week I, on Wednesday, I took the funeral of a 40-year-old young man. He died of a drug overdose. And uh, he died of that overdose in Sydney. The family uh, sort of grew up at Trinity, mum, dad, three boys. And I remember because in the late 80s they got converted as a family and were all baptised at the same time. This young man was seven, seven years old when he got baptised with his family and clearly had faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, when he was about 16 or 17, the family moved into state and it was around that time that they were seeing that there were mental health issues emerging with this child and at 20 it meant he was on the street basically uh, doing drugs uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia, subsequently in and out of prison and the most recent time he came out of prison his parents were in Brisbane, he was in Sydney, got out of prison went to a inner suburb of Sydney, bought drugs, overdosed, dead at 40. So I had a fair bit of history 
of the family. And they're trying to work out where, given they were so scattered, where they'd have the funeral. And they decided they'd do it in Adelaide because that was one of the happiest times for this boy, growing up at school, post-school, and for the family. They had lots of relatives and friends here. Hadn't been part of the church, though, for about 15 years. And she wrote to me afterwards. I mean, uh, I just couldn't quite get my head around how gutted you would feel as a parent in this situation. Uh, I didn't even want to think about it for my own family. And she wrote, the, the mother said, everyone at Trinity that we had dealings with uh, could not have been more loving and caring. I was really pleased to hear that. They didn't have much contact with the family for 15 years, but the congregation just sort of gathered around them to love and care for them at that time. Friends, we, we don't get to choose our church family. God does. And just as God has loved our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're called to love them as well at full stretch, full stretch. Final thing that comes up really briefly as we conclude, it's to crave the pure spiritual milk. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, uh, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Just a bit earlier in uh, chapter 1, Peter's spoken about the imperishable word of God. Verse 23. Uh, It's the word that gives people new birth in the family. Then in verse 24 of chapter 1, Isaiah 40 is quoted. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So I look out upon you and I say, every one of you is like a puff of wind. You're here today, gone tomorrow. That's the reality uh, by by the eternal sphere that God, God paints. Puff of wind. But God's word and his purposes, who he is, endures forever. And God's word is the thing that we build life on, eternal life on. Verse 2, it's described as spiritual milk. Literally, it's interesting. It's um, the milk of the word or it's wordy milk. Uh, It's a funny sort of an idea. But babies can't get enough of their mother's mother's milk. Uh, My daughter has a three-month-old who is very placid, very, very placid, up until she gets hungry. And then she just goes, switch, you know, and you know she just wants to be fed. Can I, can I ask you, what, what is your diet like? Uh, we're meant to be like little babies. You cannot get enough of the word of God. Are you keen to do that? Are you desperate to read God's word? Keen to be in the small group? And can I say, it's not so you're theologically well-rounded. It's so that you grow in your love for God. So that you grow like God and that you're shaped by him. Do you, do you ever feel that you are shortchanged by God? That you've drawn the short end of the stick 
uh, you know, you've missed out by comparison with the people around you. I think it can be hard to remember that you're privileged when no one around you sees it that way. 1 Peter 2, chapter, verse 3, it says this, You have tasted that the Lord is good. You have tasted that the Lord is good. If you're a believer, then you are precious. Right? God has bought you at great expense and loves you. You're a member of his family. And the more you appreciate that, the more it impacts you personally. I read an account of uh, Victoria, Queen of England, from 1837. She became queen when she was 18 years old and she reigned for 63 years. Apparently it wasn't until she was 10 years old that she worked out she was next in line to the throne. And she worked it out because she, her tutor was taking her through a history lesson. She was reading a history book and worked out that hers was the name on the list that was next in line, right, and it occurred to her. So she thought she should check it out, asked her tutor, who confirmed that it was the case. She was next in line to become Queen of England. This is what she apparently said. Then I will be good. Then I will be good. She knew that her identity needed to shape her life and her behaviour. Friends, we've, verse 3, chapter 2, we've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, people around us, they may not get it. Uh, They may see you as being a bit bit weird, a bit sort of countercultural in some ways. But can I say, if you know the Lord, you are supremely blessed. (laughs) It cannot get any better than that. That is the truth that we're focusing on now. It gives you a window into his character, into his heart, into his purposes for you, how wonderful he is. And of course, if that's the case then it will shape everything you do. Every aspect of your life. Can't help but do that, can it? Let me, let me just pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a wonderful and gracious God. Father, we thank you that you showered your blessings upon us. And Father, we pray that we'll just keep dwelling on how good it is to be redeemed by you through the precious blood of Jesus. And Father, we pray that as we think about the Christian life, it won't be just a a series, a rule book of things we need to do, uh, stay on your good side, but rather a natural outworking of what it means to be in your family. Uh, Father, help us to have your values as we live together in a way that pleases you, uh, but also in a way that just is good for us and just healthy and right. Uh, Father, help us to set our minds and our hearts on this wonderful gospel. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.